0: But let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray today that, that that song would truly be resounding in our hearts. That as we are here in the midst of this place, that as we hear your word, as we sing praises to you, we truly can say it is well with our souls. God, I pray that as we enter into this time where your word is going to be proclaimed that that you would speak mightily in our hearts, that you would reveal areas in our life where we are not living consistently with that. Lord, we pray that that there would uh, be a revelation and an understanding of how we are not living as though our souls are being satisfied in Christ. And God, we pray that in this time we would truly feast on and be satisfied in and adore and delight in Jesus Christ, the bread of life, sent for us. So God, we pray that you would be at work here. Lord, make your power and your presence known to us today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Today we're going to be, getting, uh, be starting a new series that's going to lead up to Christmas and where we examine the I Am statements in the Gospel of John. Um, we're quickly approaching this holiday which underneath the presents and the, the Christmas trees, the lights, the mistletoe, the eggnog, the decorations, this idea of Santa Claus is this story of Jesus' birth. And But even when we we are intentional about recognizing why it is we celebrate Christmas, even when we're intentional about sort of peeling back those material wrappings, sometimes we only focus on the fact that this little baby was born in a manger. It's sort of this cute, warm, fuzzy idea of, you know, Mary and Joseph traveling on a journey to bethlehem you know we think about the star we think about the shepherds we think about the angels pretty much anything that you can see in an, in a nativity scene but we miss who it really was that was lying there in that manger we we miss the fact that this is god this is the holy perfect infinite god become man he took on flesh for us, this is God that we're celebrating when we come to gather together for Christmas. And so we want to take time to focus our thoughts, our minds, and we want to use these I am statements of Jesus to do that. Because God became flesh, God became a man, and this man made some big claims. I mean, he made some huge statements. And we need to discern what he truly meant by those. When he says, I am, he's doing more than identifying something about himself. It's not as though he's saying something like, I am Chet. I am a man. I am your friend. I am sounding very silly right now. I mean, he's moving beyond that. When he says, I am, he is disclosing to us the divine. He's saying, I am God. He's revealing God to us. He's revealing that He is God's will for us. In these seven I am statements, Jesus tells us, I am your soul's true satisfaction, your only true means of nourishment. It's only by receiving me that you have eternal life. He says, I am the full revelation of God, the only means by which you can see the Father, the only means by which you can truly be saved. Jesus testifies that He's the only way that you can enter into the kingdom of God. There is no other path to God than than through Him. He says, I am God's servant. I'm God's Messiah. I am the one sent to lead God's people and to lay down my life for them so that their sins may be atoned for, they may be cleansed, and they may not be subject to the wrath of God. Jesus claims that He is the only hope for a restored, resurrected body and a reconciled relationship to God. Jesus says, I am the only way to God. I am the only proof of, the reality of, the standard of truth. If you want to know the true God, it comes through me. And then Jesus says, I am the true vine. I'm the true Israel. Only those who remain and who abide in Christ are truly the people of God. And every time he says, I am, he makes the claim, I am God. You see, when God chose to reveal himself in the Old Testament, he said he had a specific way of saying, I am. I am this. I am God. And Jesus here in John is taking on those same words, that same terminology. He's saying, I am God. So as we approach this Christmas season, I want us to reflect together on who it is we truly celebrate. Let's move on from this cute, warm and fuzzy, away in the manger story to realizing who this man truly claimed to be. Only then can we truly celebrate his birth. It's only then that we can truly rejoice in him. It's only then that our souls can truly be satisfied. And it's only then that our Christmas can truly be merry. So with that, today we're going to look at Jesus' first claim, I am the bread of life. And verses 22 through 24 set the context for us. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. In the beginning of chapter 6, we have this account of Jesus feeding 5,000 people. He had been healing many people. He had been preaching on the kingdom of God, and the time had come for them to eat. So Jesus took five loaves, He took two fish, He gave thanks, He broke them, and the scripture says that 5,000 men were fed that day. And the people began to hope, this is the Messiah. This is our king who is appointed to come and rescue us. But what they didn't realize, they were were expecting a man. They were expecting a political leader. They didn't expect him to be who he said he was. And so their desire was to make him king. Jesus understood this, and so he he disbanded them. He, he, He dismissed the crowd. He sent his disciples on ahead in a boat, and he dismissed the crowd and then later went on to pray. In verses 16 through 21, we're given... This awesome account of how Jesus went out to meet his disciples by walking on water. After the crowd had been gone, there he went out to them, met them, and then they went on ahead to Capernaum on the other side. And so now here we are in verse 22 on the other side, back where the crowd was, back where he had just fed the 5,000, and the crowd is left searching for him. And you know, we might be tempted to think, look how ardent this crowd is. Look how zealous they are to find Jesus. I mean, he dismissed them, but they came back the next day. They were hungry for more. And when he wasn't there, what did they do? They, they jumped in, they hired taxi boats, and they went on the other side to try to find him. They were zealous. I mean, they seemed really earnest. They seemed really sincere. But when we look at the rest of the chapter, in terms of the crowd's questions and then Jesus' response... We see that their diligent search wasn't really so earnest. It really wasn't that sincere. The questions reveal that they are, mistaking. they are mistaken and that they are hoping in the wrong things. Jesus offers correction and we see the crowd progressively harden their hearts against them, him. They move from asking questions then to grumbling and from grumbling then to arguing. And so we're going to look at these eight questions, responses. And and we're seeing what it is that they're wanting and what it is they're truly offered. And in the process it reveals to us the wrong inclinations of the human heart. Because I want you to see something folks. We're not, it's not like we're unlike that crowd. We, We struggle with the same things. We seek those things that are perishable. We seek the wrong things rather than God. But I pray that that in this time we will learn from Jesus. And may we truly embrace what he offers. May we find our hope, our satisfaction, and our delight in him. In verses 25 through 27, Jesus instructs us first, not to labor for that which perishes, but for that which is eternal. When the crowd found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, um, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. At last the crowd is reunited with him. After searching so diligently, after laboring so hard to find him, the crowd eventually finds him there at Capernaum. And they excitedly run up to him. And they say, Teacher, when did you come here? We've been looking everywhere for you. Again, they seem so earnest. But rather than saying, That's nice. I'm so glad that you have looked so hard for me. I tell you what, let's gather together over here and I'll continue to instruct you. Rather than saying that, Jesus instead goes for the jugular. I mean, He goes right at them because He understands their heart. He understands their motives. He understands what it is they're truly seeking, what they're truly looking for. Jesus responds to them, you're not seeking Me because you understood the signs. You don't know why it is I healed. You don't really understand why I fed 5,000. Instead, you want your bellies to be filled. That's why you're here. You just want the physical benefits provide, I can provide, but you don't want me. You only want what you think that I can give you. So he says to them, stop laboring for the things that perish, but instead seek what I can give you, that which is endures, that which is internal, that which only the Father can give you. Stop trying to find your satisfaction in the things of the world. Stop living as though there were only the here and now, as though your only need is for daily physical provision. Your true need is far greater than physical sustenance. Your your true need is far greater than material supply. Your, Your true need is far greater than earthly satisfaction. Friends, we have an eternal need. We have an eternal hunger, an eternal longing. And he is the only one who can satisfy it. This is the task that God appointed him to when he set his, his seal upon him. Jesus says, The signs I gave, the miracles I performed, were meant so that you could see that I am divine and the only one who can truly save and can truly satisfy the needs of your soul. So immediately, Jesus challenges us. What is it that you're laboring for? What is it that you're striving so hard after? What are you trying to find your satisfaction in? Do you think that the things of this world will truly satisfy you? Is health, wealth, and prosperity the goal of your life? Worse off, are you being like this crowd? Are you trying to use Jesus as a means to gain those things? Do you come to him seeking material benefits so that you can have your best life now? Do you realize that that every longing of the human heart, every time you hunger, every time you thirst, Every time you actually desire satisfaction, it's meant to point you to something greater, to a greater longing, to a greater desire, to a greater hunger, to a greater need, to a greater satisfaction. It's meant to point you to an eternal spiritual hunger that only Jesus can satisfy. I mean, let's think about it for a minute. Let's think about eating. I mean, we're obviously dealing with bread here. The crowd was hungry, and so they wanted to eat. When you eat, you fill your belly for a while, and you feel satisfied. But what happens a few hours later? <laughs> he wants bacon. <laughs> He's no longer satisfied, right? That that earthly provision cannot eternally satisfy him. It cannot meet his greatest need. I mean, the same thing happens with any of our the daily provisions that we might desire. The same thing happens with with relationships, with earthly pleasures. I mean, you name it, they can't truly satisfy. They leave us hungry. They leave us longing for more and more and more. Each is perishable. Each fade. Each gets used up. It gets worn out or it disappoints because it can't truly satisfy our deepest longing. It can't do that. Only Christ can do that. Christ is the soul Eternal satisfaction of every human soul. So stop laboring for that which is perishable. Second, verses 28 and 29, Jesus instructs us to stop relying on ourselves for salvation, but believe in Him. Then the crowd said to Him, What must we be doing to do the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him who He has sent. The question is, what must we be doing to do the work of God? Jesus had just told them not to labor for that which perishes. And so they asked the question, okay, what do we labor for? What do we invest ourselves in? What do we need to do to be able to do what God requires? And they asked this question sincerely thinking that if Jesus told them, okay, if he gave them a list, do this and don't do this, that they would actually be able to fulfill that. They truly believe that if He told them what to do, they would be able to do that. They would be able to get there by their own works. Apparently, they haven't learned from the Old Testament law. Apparently, they haven't learned that, That clearly, they can't follow all of God's commands. No one can be righteous by their own works. They, they cannot earn their salvation by their own effort. The reality is, they can't do anything. You can't do anything to save yourselves. Jesus' response is that the work of God is to believe in Jesus. You can't merit eternal life, but you receive it by faith in the Son of God. Ephesians 2.8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Faith has been gifted to us by the grace of God, not by our own doing. Our works mean nothing. So if verse 27 tells us that Jesus is the one who gives eternal life, and Ephesians 2:8-9 says that faith is given by the grace of God and not of our own doing, then we are utterly helpless in and of ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. We can do nothing but receive, um, but receive eternal life, except to be given the gift of faith in Jesus Christ from God, and through Him we can obtain the hope of eternal life. So what can you do to earn eternal life? Nothing. Nothing. The work that God requires, this, get this, the work that God requires is actually the work that He performs. You know, you, you have nothing to offer, but you have everything to gain. So receive the gift of faith in Jesus Christ. And I really want to challenge this, guys, because it's so easy to try to rely upon ourselves, to try to merit our own salvation, or when we think we've received salvation from God, to try to pay Him back. I mean, we do this all the time. We think to ourselves, you know what? I, I'm basically good. I, I, I try to do more good things than bad things. You know, you may say to yourself, well, I give to charity. Well, I pray. I read my Bible. I go to church. You might say to yourself, I do penance for my sin. That ought to atone for it. Surely God will look upon those things and he will, he will grant me favor, that He will find those things pleasing. But the reality is, it can't, it doesn't, it doesn't work. You can't buy God. You can't work your way to Him. Friends, we do not come to God. He came to us. This is the whole point of Jesus coming to earth, of God becoming flesh. So stop believing in, hoping in, and relying upon yourselves and receive the gift of faith. Believe in Him. Hope in Him. Rely upon Him. Jesus is the only way to eternal life. He's the only way to be saved from the punishment and the penalty that our sins deserve. Jesus is the only way that we can be reconciled to God because Jesus, because only Jesus can do what God requires and the only hope we have, the only hope we have is to be found in Him. You're helpless to save yourselves. So friends, believe in Jesus. Third, verses 30-33, through Jesus instructs us to relinquish our demands and expectations of God and receive His gift. So they said to Him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father who gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So it's clear from the questions that the crowd had certain expectations of Jesus. They said to him, prove yourself, prove yourself to us. We are expecting somebody who is greater than Moses. We are expect, he, he actually provided our father with, our fathers with food in the desert. Do you realize that two million people were given a two liter bottle full of manna every day, every single day for 40 years? I mean, you add that up and that's, that's ridiculous. I forget how long the freight train full of freight cars would be every day if that was going to be the case. I mean, God provided that. That's a, that's a big thing. And that's not even mentioning the quail that he provided or the water. And so they, they may have said to Jesus, you know, yeah, sure, you, you took some fish, you took some loaves, you broke those things and you, you passed them out, you fed 5,000 people, that's great. That's great, but hey, we're still expecting somebody greater than Moses. We're expecting our Messiah to feed more and to feed them forever. You see, the crowd truly was looking for their Savior. Do you realize that? They were truly looking for their Savior. They were looking for the Messiah. But, but the demands and expectations that they placed on Him actually blinded them to the fact that He was standing right in front of them. They couldn't see Him because they had too many expectations. They misunderstood and they weren't willing to accept Him. And inevitably, they were putting their faith in man and not in God. And so Christ's response to them was, You've missed it. It wasn't Moses that gave you the bread. God gave you the bread. But Moses and this bread, this is the neat thing. They were right in having these expectations of someone greater than Moses. They were right in having expectations of of bread that would satisfy them? Because those things were meant to point to something greater. A time in which the provider of the bread and the bread itself would become one. I mean, this is huge. This is what the Old Testament was pointing to. Yes, someone greater than Moses is here. God has become man. And yes, something greater than the manna from heaven is here. This man, Jesus, is the bread of life. He is the bread from heaven. But they were blinded to the fact that they were looking only to the physical and not to the spiritual. You don't see because expectations and demands uh, that you place on God have blinded you. What they wanted was a political leader who could satisfy their physical needs. That's what they wanted. What they got was something completely different. What they got was the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who could satisfy their ever, every spiritual longing, their ever spiritual need. Their expectations blinded them from seeing that Jesus had done far more than Moses and that Jesus was far more than Moses. So let me ask you this. What are you demanding from Jesus? What signs or provisions do you require of Him? What are your expectations? Are you asking Jesus to prove Himself to you, or are you willing to take Him and His Word? Friends, it is far too easy for us to do this. It is far too easy for us to do this. We unwittingly place many expectations and demands on Christ. We do just the same thing as that crowd. We try to barter with Him. We try to make deals with Him. We say, you know, Jesus, I'll come to you if you give me you and this whatever that might be. Prove yourself by showing signs and wonders and and miracles before me. Heal me or give me that job or give me that person to marry and then I'll follow you. Or, I'll be yours if you don't ask me to give up those things that I don't want to give up. In the same way we make demands on Christ. We say, prove yourself to me. Prove yourself to me. As if God is subject to me. As if I am the authority over God. The funny thing is, this crowd had just watched Jesus feed 5,000. If they would only quiet their mouths, they would have probably heard the disciples talking about how Jesus had just walked on water. And they stood there and they looked Jesus straight in the face, straight in the face. And they didn't believe him. They asked him to prove himself again. It wasn't enough. And you and I are just as likely to do the same thing. We really are. So please, lay down your demands and expectations and receive God's gift. Fourth, verses 34 through 40 tell us, Believe in Jesus and find your true satisfaction. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Hey, we want this bread. Give it to us always. Please, give it to us. But again, they were only focused on the physical. They were still looking for physical satisfaction rather than what is spiritual. They weren't looking for the one who comes down from heaven to give life to the world. They they persisted in misunderstanding his meaning. And then Jesus tells them why they continue to misinterpret his signs and message. Here he speaks plainly. He says, I, I am the bread of life. I am the one who fulfills Isaiah 49.10. I am the one who fulfills Isaiah 55.1, that whoever comes to me shall never hunger nor thirst. Your souls will indeed be satisfied in me. Jesus says, you have seen me. Yet, you do not believe. You've seen my power. You've heard my words. And yet, you do not have faith. And guys, as I was preparing for this message, I was really struck by this. I mean, this really got to me. When you think about it, Jesus was the greatest orator in the world. No one is more read than Jesus. I mean, There is not a speaker in the world that can compare to Jesus Christ. And not to mention that, look at all the signs and wonders that he had performed. I mean, in that very chapter, he had just fed 5,000 and he had just walked on water. And yet it wasn't enough. These signs, these wonders, these miracles, and, and these very skilled speakers, they can rouse curiosity They can draw a crowd, but they can't give faith. It doesn't matter how skilled you are. It doesn't matter the miracles and wonders that you perform. Only God can give faith. And Jesus says that salvation is the sovereign work of God. All that the Father chooses to give Him, all that the Father elects, will indeed come to Him and remain in Him, and He will never cast them out. The reason why the crowd persists in unbelief in verse 36 is found in verse 37. God has not given them to Jesus. And because they have not been given, they will not come. In verse 38 through 40 then, Jesus gives us a wonderful promise. Because He is committed to being completely obedient to the Father, He will not cast out any who come to Him. They will indeed persevere in the faith until the last day when Jesus will raise them up to live eternally with God. Those who have been given faith will remain faithful. They will persevere. Guys, this is a tremendous blessing. I know that when people hear about God giving people to Jesus and that not being them choosing them, they get really frustrated. But we think about salvation is a work of God and it is a gift. It is a wonderful thing. God chooses us though we don't deserve him. And then he gives us Christ and Christ keeps us in the faith. We don't fall away because Christ keeps us. He maintains us. He will not cast us out. This is glorious. And I don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. This is a wonderful thing. And I pray that you guys can see that this is, this is beautiful. This is awesome. This doesn't motivate me to kind of like exalt myself. This motivates me to fall on my knees and praise God and give my life to tell others about the same gracious and glorious gift. So if you're here and you find yourself being drawn to Christ, or you have faith in Christ, the reality is you should continue in your desire to find your soul's satisfaction in Christ. He promises that all who are in Him will not thirst or will not hunger. Their souls will find satisfaction in the bread of life. So look at your life over the long haul. Have you been growing in your desire to be satisfied in Christ? If so, that's a great comfort. That's what provides assurance. Not in that we attest that we believe something, but we see our desire growing to, to, to glory in, to re- revel in, to adore Christ. To find our soul satisfaction in Him. And when that is our pursuit... Then we can have confidence that our faith is secure. So, are you persevering in your faith? Are you increasing in your desire to find your satisfaction in Him? In verses 41 through 51, Jesus issues a challenge. He says, Do not grumble, but receive and rest in me. So the Jews grumbled about Him because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent him draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone except... Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, has, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that everyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Frustrated by Jesus' response, the crowd went from questioning to now grumbling. Ironically, they resorted to the very same thing that the Israelites did when they had received the manna in the wilderness. You know, the Jews in Jesus' day were looking back and said, that was such a glorious thing that they received that manna from God. Well, in the time when the Israelites were receiving it, they were like, what is this junk? Why do we have to eat only this? When we were in Egypt, we had a lot of great stuff to eat. We should just go back there. They continued to grumble. And so now, fast forward to Jesus' day, you've got the Jews who received the bread of life, something far greater, and now they're complaining because they didn't have manna. It's just completely ironic. Rather than see and believe, they responded with doubt. Doubt. They questioned the validity of Jesus' claim. Do you see what they said? They said, isn't isn't this Jesus? Isn't this the son of Joseph? I mean, we know his parents. How does he say that he came from heaven? They minimize him. And they begin to make him into a man. And don't we see that happen time and time again today? People say, no, no, he wasn't God. He was just an inspired man. And Jesus responds to them again by affirming that salvation is the work of God from beginning to end. That those who are drawn, who are given to Christ, will come to Him and remain in Him until the last day. So unless there is a work of divine spiritual renewal, in which, as it says in verse 45, we have heard and we have learned from God, no one would, none of us would ever come to Christ. This is what Jesus says, um, and this is what Jesus says to those who are grumbling. You know, the greatest thing you need, the greatest thing you need right now is to be humbled. You need to stop making much of yourself. You need to stop overestimating yourself. You need to realize that you can't do nothing by your own ability. He quotes Isaiah 54:13. You need to be taught by God. You must learn from the Father. You must understand this, that there's absolutely nothing that you can do to save yourselves. Apart from the sovereign work of God's grace, you can't do anything. You, you can't, by your own unaided strength, come to Me. You can't enjoy the bread that endures to eternal life apart from the drawing of My Father. That bread, which you enjoy is my flesh, which I sacrifice for you. I will give my body, my blood, to satisfy the wrath of God, which you deserve because of your sins, so that you might be reconciled to Him. And so Jesus poses the same challenge to us. Will we accept Him at His word, that salvation is the work of God from beginning to end, or will we grumble because we desire to save ourselves? Will we accept God's plan for salvation or complain because it doesn't conform to our demands or expectations? Will we receive and rest in the bread of life? Or will we continue to live our lives as though we did not need to be saved? Last week we sang the song Rock of Ages and it really summed up Christ's message well. The lyrics say, Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal or respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, lest I die. Salvation is absolutely all of grace or nothing at all. Salvation is a sinner saying, I am starving. I am absolutely starving and I have nothing to offer. To those sinners who would say that, Jesus would say in verses 52 through 59 feed your soul and abide in me. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us flesh to eat? So whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. The crowd has now moved from grumbling to arguing amongst themselves over Jesus' words. What does he truly mean when he's saying they must eat his flesh? Rather than looking back and realizing that the Old Testament sacrificial system was insufficient to cleanse them of their sin and grant them eternal life, they ignorantly repeated the same question over and over and over. How can this man give us flesh to eat? And we need to recognize that these, again, were religious people. Verse 59 says that Jesus taught them in the synagogue at Capernaum. They they were there to be taught by God. And here was Jesus, the Son of God, teaching them. But they would not listen. Rather than being taught by God, they were dull. They continued to harden their hearts against Jesus. And so he says to them, you need a greater sacrifice. The blood of sheep and bulls can't atone. They can't cleanse you of your sin. And mere religious practice will not give you eternal life. If you really want to be reconciled to God, if you really want recognize the severity of your sin and that you are under the wrath of God, you would accept my sacrifice. You would spiritually eat of my flesh and drink of my blood or look upon and believe me. Only I can give life and I give it by laying down my body and by giving my blood for you. So unless you hunger and thirst for me, unless you satisfy your soul in me, unless you abide in me continually, you have no life in you. So friends, our only hope for salvation is that, our only hope for salvation from our sin, our, really our, our only hope for salvation from ourselves, is the cross of Christ. His body, His blood, was given for us, so that we might have eternal life in Him. And I want you guys to recognize salvation, you know, saving faith is not found in blind religious practice. You don't you're not saved by believing in some concepts and then acting just in obedience, following rituals without thinking, without really being transformed. Saving faith comes from recognizing your absolute need of and your hunger for Christ and your desperate awareness that you can do nothing to earn it. Saving faith is not intellectually acknowledging that Jesus died on the cross, but that He died for your sins. It's not enough to recognize that Jesus died for sins. Did He die for yours? So are you acutely aware of your need for... your continual need to abide in Him, to depend upon Him, and so seek Him day after day after day after day. This is what Jesus means when He said, you abide in Me, that you feast on My flesh continually. It's not like riding a bike. It's not like, We need a lot of help to begin with. We need help sitting on that seat and eventually we kind of learn how to work the pedals and we learn how to turn the handlebars and eventually they take off the training wheels and they kind of give us a little scoot and there we go and now we don't need help. We never forget how to ride a bike. We no longer need Christ. We never move beyond that place of needing help to sit up on that seat. That's what it means to abide continually in Christ and we need that. We never grow beyond our need for him. We must continually, day by day, depend upon, feed upon, and find our satisfaction in him. And to do this, Jesus gives us some hints. In verses 60 through 65, he tells us that, Look not to the flesh, but to the word and spirit. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? who those were who did not believe, and who it was who would betray Him. And Jesus said, this is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted Him by the Father. So the question now comes from many of those who considered themselves His disciples, who had followed Jesus for a time. They were devoted. They were loyal. This goes beyond those... the the broad crowd to some specific people who had dedicated themselves to him. And they said, this is a hard saying. He said, that's not actually a very good translation. It's like, this is harsh. This is offensive. This is intolerable. How can anyone stand this? How can anyone not be offended by what you said, Jesus? They couldn't bear with what he was saying. And so Jesus' response was, well, if you're offended by this, that you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, imagine the outrage that you will experience when you see me ascending back to where I came from before. When Jesus talks about ascending, he's not talking about bodily levitating back to heaven. You know, we think of Acts in which he rose on a cloud and everybody was kind of like sad to see him go and really missed Jesus his ascension that he's talking about here is his ascension to the cross. His ascension came as this anointed Messiah, God's chosen one, was nailed to the cross. There is nothing more outrageous, nothing more scandalous, nothing more offensive than the idea of our coming king and conqueror being degraded, being ashamed being being mutilated before our very eyes. How is that, this mighty king that we expected? This was a man who died. That's why Jesus says, if you don't believe that you need to receive my flesh and my blood continually, how would you ever accept my ascension to glory? that very at the very heart of divine disclosure came through the crucifixion of the appointed messiah jesus moment of greatest degradation and shame was actually the moment of his glorification the path of his return to glory that he had with father his father before the world began the hour when the savior the servant of the lord is despised and rejected when he is pierced for our de- transgressions, and crush for our iniquities is the point in time in which He was raised and lifted and highly exalted. Eating His flesh and drinking His blood then pales in comparison to the scandal of the ascension to the cross. He says to them, You do not believe because it has not been granted to you by the Father. You will not accept my claims on your own. Your flesh is, it means nothing. It's of no account. It is of no avail. It is the Spirit who gives life. And He does it through my spiritual, life-giving words. So friends, we need to realize, we're we're 2,000 years separated from what has happened. And so it's easy for us to miss how scandalous this event was. How scandalous what He was saying was. This glorious truth of the cross is a stumbling block and foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. We can't open blind eyes. We can't make anyone see. We must direct them to the life-giving word and pray that the Holy Spirit will give them life. And so if you're here and you want to know Christ, if you want to live with Him eternally, you seek Him through the power of His Spirit in His word. That's the instruction that he gives us in this passage. So finally friends, in verses 66-69, through Jesus leaves us with two choices. You can either go his way, or you can either do it your way, or you can do it his. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So now Jesus leaves you with a question Will you go away as well? Many heard his words but turned from him. Are you going to do the same? Friends, some of you are here this morning and you may have never truly placed your trust in Jesus. You may not have been aware of your sin or its severity. You may not have recognized your need for Him. But I pray that Jesus' words are creating within you a stirring in your heart. I pray that your soul is, is awakening to your hunger, your longing, your need for Christ. And that you have a desire to come to know Him. And I pray that you did not leave here without making us aware of that. You come and talk to me, talk to Jim, talk to Shane, talk to Caleb, talk to one of us, but don't leave here with that stirring on your heart. Some of you may be here professing faith, but having never found your soul's satisfaction in Christ. You lack the longing to feed your soul with the bread of life. And to you, I would say, repent, turn, and follow Him. Seek Him as your soul's satisfaction. In others, you may have just grown cold. You may have started out on fire with God uh, being your your full focus, with your your desire being to, to have Christ as your soul's satisfaction. And I pray that God revives your hearts so that you may long for and depend upon and make your soul happy in Christ. I pray that you turn from your vain religious practices and truly taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the bread of life. And God, we pray that our souls will not rest until we find our rest in Him. We pray that we will not be satisfied until our souls are satisfied in Christ. Father, forgive us for striving to make our own way, for starving our souls as we seek to live life without Christ, being the essence, being the center of being the single-minded satisfaction of our hearts. We pray that we might truly he might truly be our bread of life, that our hope, our rest, our nourishment might be daily found in him. Please do this work in us now by the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen.